way we're talking about metaphysical assumptions behind uh, not only our view of scripture, but also a view, our view of interpretation. Um, whereas I believe we're all in agreement that our, our metaphysic is that God has spoken and we must determine uh, what God has said and by authorial intent, uh, what he meant to say by what he said. Um, and in a way, um, that meaning is not affected whatsoever by any kind of label that we want to put on it, whether uh, labels that we have, meaning like we, we whether we're, uh, whether you're talking about ethnic labels or cultural labels or uh, what other worldviews. And, and, and I think the metaphysics from the other point of view, and I, I don't mean to pick on uh, Mr. McCauley, uh, I think he's Dr. McCauley, um, but just anyone that would want to label a, a group of hermeneutic or classify a group of her hermeneutics into groups based off of anything, um, it, I find it, it is self-defeating because of the metaphysics that's behind it. Uh, I, I think it ultimately, uh, maybe you would agree, it stems from uh, a metaphysic that comes from subjectiveness, or at least it leads to subjectiveness. Um, so what are the, what are the metaphysics then that, that underlie um, sound biblical hermeneutics? And what do you see from the metaphysical side that, that, that is behind the more subjective um, hermeneutics that we're seeing pop up, whether it be uh, feminist hermeneutics or ethnic hermeneutics or whatnot? Uh, yeah, you know, I think in, in its most simplistic form, we do this because men want to fight, you know, our natural flesh fights against God. And this is just one way to do that, right? We, the fallen state of man wants to be God himself. And this is just a way to do that. Um, just in its very basic, simplistic form, you know, it's no different than rebellion in any, any other area. Um, when, when you get, uh, you know, godless people, who are reading scripture, they'll always do this. Now, I think, you know, so that's for that side. I think for believers, um, you know, I I would like to believe in the most charitable way that the great majority of believers who read scripture and interpret incorrectly is just probably because they haven't been taught how to rightly interpret scripture. Um, I, and, and that's a failing of the pulpit, right? That's a failing of the church. And I think we need to admit that we've gone far too long um, without having an emphasis on teaching the body of Christ how to rightly interpret Scripture. And so I think the great majority of people, uh, professing believers, that's where they are. Um, lots of people just get caught up in bad teaching, right? So someone hears the word justice, um, and a teacher talk about how Scripture is teaching this form of justice, and it ends up being critical race theory. And, and the person who loves God, who maybe isn't a mature believer says, you know, I know that God loves justice, rightfully so. And yeah, so absolutely. And so they grab a hold of, of the teaching, um, just not having learned in a mature way how to test what's being uh, preached, how to test what's being taught, like the Bereans. Eki, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I think of the analogy of people that seek out counselors. They have a problem, they seek out a counselor. And a lot of people, when they seek out a counselor, they're not really interested in what the counselor believes is the right solution. They're looking for a counselor that tells them what they want to hear. And so that's one of the things that from a counseling standpoint, you always want to be aware of people doing that. 
And it's the same thing with the Bible. A lot of people go to the Bible and they will seek out teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. I think of Paul Washer. Paul Washer was making a statement about Joel Osteen once where he said that he actually was not concerned about the effect that Joel Osteen had upon real Bible-believing Christians, because real Bible-believing Christians will pretty quickly be able to discern that there's something wrong with what Joel Osteen is teaching, something seriously wrong. Um, his viewpoint was that Joel Osteen was judgment upon America um, for the kinds of teaching that they wanted rather than the true teaching of the Bible. But the irony here is when we think about hermeneutics, hermeneutics, the, the whole reason why hermeneutics is important is because we believe that truth is objective. If truth is not objective, then hermeneutics doesn't matter um, because we can just go ahead and read it and make it say whatever we want to say. So hermeneutics is meant to be those boundaries that's supposed to keep us um, on the straight and narrow in terms of figuring out what it really means. And by making hermeneutics now a subjective thing where you say there's a hermeneutic for this group, there's a hermeneutic for this group, there's a hermeneutic for a slave owner and for a slave, you now take the very tool that was intended to pull out the objective meaning and you've made you've rendered it useless by turning it into a subjective tool that's um that's attached to different groups so i i agree with nathaniel i think when people come to the text unfortunately they're looking to make the text say what they wanted to say rather than what it really says and we see this very clearly with the feminist movement um we we, we see this in a lot of different ways where for instance when when we get people now that are portraying god as a woman when you get people like Beth Moore that are saying that there's tension between what Jesus taught and what Paul taught when it came to female teachers and whatnot, you, you know, those are violations of the most basic rules of hermeneutics that all scripture agrees with each other. There is no disagreements. So when we see something that contradicts or appears to contradict, our job is not to say, well, yeah, that contradicts, but it's to harmonize. And I am encouraged by the words of Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, when he is talking about the writings of Paul. He says in verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Peter actually called Paul's writings hard to understand. That actually encourages me. Because when I read Paul's writings, they the, the meaning doesn't j just jump off the page all the time. Peter himself had difficulty understanding, or at least had to apply some real effort to understanding Paul's writings. But he goes on to say that it is the untaught and unstable who distorted. So hermeneutics is the hard work of going through the scriptures to understand, again, what the author meant. And it doesn't always come quickly. It doesn't always come easily, but the meaning is there. And unless you're untaught or unstable, if you're following the proper rules of communication, you should be able to arrive at what the author, what the human author intended, which is what God had intended as he was working through that human author by the power of the spirit. Yeah. And I, you know, I think a good litmus test is if, if whatever conclusion, I, I mean, I guess there are a couple, if whatever conclusion I come to one goes against the, the understanding that the church has had throughout all of history, that should be a red flag Two, if the, if it can't be exported right to any other culture in the world, that should be a red flag, um, you know, and, and that's what we're seeing in the Western culture. I mean, critical race theory does not work anywhere else but in a Western setting. Right. And, and I, I can just speak to the African continent because I've spent a great deal of my life there. Um, what do you do when you go to a country where everybody is black? 
and you have the same sin problems, right? So instead of quote unquote racism, you get tribalism, which is the exact same sin, right? The sin of partiality. So um, everyone's skin color looks the same, but you have the exact same thing. One group hates another group. There's, there's wealthy, there's poor. Um, so if you can't export uh, the, the, the conclusion you've come to, that should be a big red flag. Um, and, and then the third thing is, I, I think if, if you're coming to a scriptural interpretation in isolation, right, outside of the context of the Christian body, the local church, um, you know, almost kind of a Gnostic type thing, that should be a big red flag. Um, and, and so there are plenty of just reasonable you know, guards, if, if we'll think through when we come to these interpretations. But, um, you know, 2 Timothy 4, I mean, it tells us exactly why we see what we see, right? Uh, 3 says, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but will wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. Um, you go to first and second Peter, uh, which basically all throughout, he keeps saying false teachers are coming, false teachers are coming. And then you go to Jude, and Jude says they're here, right? Um, and and so th this is why we have this, and the reason they're so popular is because people want their ears tickled, like we've said various times. But I think if we stick to these hermeneutical principles, um, I, I'd I'd far rather see discussion around which hermeneutic we use and why um, than the conversations we see in our culture now, which is basically. Um, well, you know, if, if you're my skin color, then this is what the text says to me. Well, it doesn't really matter what the text says to you because um, I, we've got to be able to send missionaries to Asia, to Africa, to Indonesia, um, and they've got to have the same message because, you know, God doesn't have a skin color. He's spirit, and the text just means one thing for all people. I also find it ironic that, um, or, or maybe just sad, uh, the lack of thought behind these things, because the Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, spent the most time uh, of any of the apostles um, mixing with other cultures, and he never changed the message. Uh, like I think Eki referred to earlier, um, it, you know, Paul traveled all around, and his message was exactly the same. But not only that, Paul communicated uh, the, in the largest way through letters, that, that was standard of the day, and it was just the same letter. That was probably copied um, exactly and sent around to different churches in different cultural uh, locations, just one letter. And they would not have ever asked a question, well, what does this mean for the Macedonians? What does this mean for the Mesopotamians? It just would have been, oh, here's a letter from Paul. What's he telling us? Um, and, and that's where we've got to be, too. So here, two, you know, thousands of years later, um, we're asking the same question. Here's a letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, who the Ephesians probably read, who those in Galatia also read. Um, and we're in America, and we're reading the same letter, and we should be coming to the same conclusion uh, that the Romans would have come to when they read Paul's letter. Yeah, and, and just to add on top of that, <clears throat> great points uh, from Nathaniel. Um, when these writings were given to the original church, they weren't told to get the interpretation from all the surrounding churches or all the surrounding areas or all the surrounding cultures. And when we see statements, for instance, in John chapter 20, verse, verse 31, uh, where John writes, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
look, you don't have to wait to hear back from a multitude of different cultures in order to believe that statement, right? You read this, if you know that Jesus is the Christ, then you know. And the problem, the, the other problem with, you know, with this kind of standpoint epistemology or, or this kind of culture or ethnic-based uh, hermeneutic is that when do you get to the actual truth? Because if we have a white hermeneutic and a black hermeneutic in the United States, well, we also need an Asian hermeneutic. You get that. Well, what about the Africans? What about the Australians? You know, what about the people in the Middle East? You know, there's always going to be someone that you're missing. So if we're saying that you can't arrive at the truth until you hear from all these cultural perspectives, at what point is, are, are you going to be able to reach everyone? And then when you pull everyone's perspectives, again, who is going to be the arbiter of truth? Who is going to, who's going to collate all these responses and say, okay, now I've got it. So in a sense, this kind of ethnic kind of hermeneutic really opens the door to kind of a mysticism where we, we can't really ever know what the real truth of the scripture is. And, and not only that, but when we make it a ethnic hermeneutic, what we're doing is we're inviting people's experiences from that ethnic background to come into play. And, and that really is part of the CRT worldview. CRT worldview rejects this idea of objective truth, that everything has been socially constructed. And to find the real truth, you have to find it through the experiences of individuals. And so that really, when you think about it, that's kind of the same thing of what CRT is doing, except now you're transferring it over to the Bible and you're making these kind of quote unquote ethnic-based hermeneutics in which to come to the ultimate truth of scripture, you're going to have to gather all the ethnicities in the world. And that's just not feasible. And fortunately, that is not what God expected. God expected us to be able to read this, even independent of other cultures around us. You know, as long as you're within the body of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit that's working. The Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and our minds to be able to read this within the context of the church. To Nathaniel's point, I sometimes refer to... Um, to caveman theology, where someone will go into a cave and they'll lock themselves up for years, come out and, and, and believe that they've got everything right and everyone else has, has it all wrong. And just to add and to reemphasize what Nathaniel said about church history, church history is a great validating point. And if we say that we've discovered something now that the church has lacked for the last 2000 years, well, what does that say for the sufficiency and the clarity of scripture itself? We're implying that everyone else has gotten it wrong. Well, then how, how do you sell to people today that they've got it right if the people from the last 2,000 years have got it wrong, right? It's just like, it's just like science, how it keeps contradicting itself. Okay, I'll stop talking. I keep, I keep babbling. No, to, to, to your point, um, I, I don't mean to keep picking on that one book, but <clears throat> it's just the one I've been reading currently. But he says, but if we all, quote, I'm quoting here, if we all read the biblical text, assuming that God is able to speak a coherent word to us through it, then we can discuss the meanings our varied cultures have gleaned from the scriptures. And what I have in mind then is a unified mission in which our varied cultures turn to the text in dialogue with one another to discern the mind of Christ. That means in the providence of God, <clears throat> I need Ugandan biblical interpretation because the experiences of Ugandans mean that they are able to bring their unique insights to the conversation. African-American exegesis then, precisely because it is informed by the Black experience, has the potential to be universal when added to the chorus of believers through time and across cultures. So exactly what you were saying, I think he is advocating for this universal 
collective interpretations that we that all the cultures come up with individually and then we bring them all together and then that's supposed to inform us on the mind of Christ whereas the biblical model as you just mentioned is that there is one message one meaning that God has intended to be there and it is cross-cultural no matter what culture you're in God expects you to arrive at that meaning uh, and that meaning, and I think a little bit maybe he conflates interpretation and application. Because I, I, I would I would assume that we would all agree that some cultures would arrive at maybe slightly differing applications than others. If I'm trying to exercise what it means to be submissive to government authorities, that might look different if I grew up in a uh, democratic republic as the United States, or if I'm growing up in North Korea. Uh, it might look different how that that text is in generally applied, um, but the interpretation is still the same. Um, so I think in some ways they're they're conflating the two. Uh, but I just wanted to to say that as uh, Eki, as you just mentioned, that what what you're saying is exactly the point that he's coming to in in chapter one. Right, and and that's that's where you have to go to. But um, great point also. There should be one interpretation of what the text means. There's multiple applications, and the applications are going to vary based upon culture, geography, and, and all that kinds of stuff, um, time in history. Um, so yeah, we'll go to different parts of the world. And for those of us who have traveled, and obviously you, Nahum, you're in Norway, you've been in the U.S. Um, Nathaniel, I know you've at, at least been in Africa. I've, you know, I've, I've um, met believers in Israel, the Czech Republic, Ukraine, Thailand, Singapore, um, China. And what's amazing is that when you go all over the world and you meet true fellow believers, it is amazing that they understand the text the same way. They don't apply it all the same way, but you can talk to a fellow believer and you can feel that instant connection of knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior, our hope is in the future, he died on the, on the cross for our sins, they're all paid for, and now we're going to make disciples of all the nations. They, they get that, they understand that, they understand that very clearly. And just like Nathaniel said, your theology, whatever your theology is, it needs to be able to export, it needs to be able to be true in whatever culture, whatever part of the world you go to. Now, again, they may look at that and wrestle with what is the application. And that's what we should do. We need to wrestle with those, those applications. And it is going to be different for different peoples. And there may be insights that we learn from other people in terms of how they apply it, but it doesn't mean the original meaning has changed. Nathaniel, right. what do you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, going back to the, the book, um, I, something I noticed when you read that again is he, he's actually fundamentally change the definition of the word meaning, right? Yeah. When we talk about meaning of scripture, there is a specific definition. Um, and, and meaning refers to the content of communication that the writer will to convey, you know, through his writing, through his words um, and the grammar that he used. That's what meaning is. And he has changed that, right? Uh because if you use the definition of meaning, then it removes all subjectivity. There's no longer the ability to say my ethnic background or my upbringing can bring any value because that's not the definition of meaning. And that's interesting because, again, we that's a big problem today. We live in a culture where definitions really do not matter any longer. Um, everyone can have their own definition. And that's exactly what it is. We see that probably most easily when we talk about love, 
right? Um, everyone has their own definition of love. Well, scripture has a definition of love, and that would be the accurate definition. Um, it, you know, uh, it's almost, if it weren't so sad, it'd almost be a bit comical when you talk about ethnicity uh, being highly prized in value and interpretation, because if, if an ethnicity did matter and it does not, then we would all need to be Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. And so I, I, I find that I find that a bit comical. Um, I, I, I pulled up a quote here from a professor. Let me just read this real quick. Since we're talking about uh, trying to bring ethnicity and such. Uh, but but I'm, I, I want to read this and then talk about uh, just why it's, it's so off. So, quote, uh, as a black brown professor of a New Testament interpretation at a predominantly white seminary, I often ask my students whether they've ever read a non-white author. The amount who haven't is staggering. Based on my travels throughout the country and interactions with people who've studied at different institutions, I've learned many students can earn an undergraduate degree, a master's degree, even a PhD in 2017 without being required to read a non-white author. Well, I'm not going to argue with that. Let me, I just want to say this. Anyone who's read the Bible, who has, has read a collection of writings by all non-white authors. <laughs> yeah, all the, all the scriptures, with exception for a couple of books, were written by Jewish people, right? Exactly. Um, so we, we have the same problem, even if we go back to the, the, the scriptures. Um, but I, I was just thinking as you were talking, Nathaniel, I mean, think about what God said to Joshua, right? When God's addressing Joshua in Joshua chapter one, God says to him to be careful, to, to, to meditate upon the words of the book of the law day and night. And this was Joshua, probably the most faithful man in all of Israel, who had already proven his faithfulness, at least over the course of 40 years. And he was being told to meditate day and night on the words of the book of the law so that he may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And only then would he have success and prosper. And then what do we see in the next book after um, Joshua? We see the book of Judges. And three times in the book of Judges, we see um, there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so when we go to this idea that different ethnicities have different interpretations, how is that different from the book of Judges when people just did what was right in their own eyes? Because the implication there is that we shouldn't be doing what's right in our eyes. We should be doing what's right in God's eyes. And that is knowable. So when we open that up and people are just starting to kind of do their own thing, and this is where the whole counsel of God comes into play. When you know the whole counsel of God and you understand it in context, you start to realize just how untenable these positions are, that, that we can have just multiple interpretations. Well, what about the book of Judges? What about what Israel did, you know, all throughout the Old Testament when they were spiraling out of control? So all, all these things hinge, they, they, they really hinge upon our need to, um, to, to worship God in both spirit and truth. And that's, you know, John chapter four, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. We want to worship him in spirit from, from the inside, you know, that we have the right heart motives, but also according to truth and whose truth, not the truth of, the, of an ethnic tribe or clan, but the truth according to God. And I, and I think to, to build on that, that I, what we're kind of tossing, jumping in between is, is two different worldviews. We have a, a worldview that, that promotes objective truth. Uh, the biblical worldview is objective truth. Um, and I think what's what we're kind of talking about with these 
um, shall we say, uh, varied hermeneutics from different cultures and worldviews it is a it is a worldview that that promotes subjectivism. Uh, that that is the truth is equal for you what it is for me, uh, and I think it leads to absurdity. And there's just so we're not picking on one book or one person. Uh, there's a there's a quote from a I won't name her name, but a famous person on Twitter, where she says recently, "I've spent my whole life studying the Bible, which I believe has made me a wiser person, and yet the Bible is not my final authority anymore because I'm wise enough now to understand that what I that I could be interpreting it wrong. What I trust most now is my inner guidance system." And so it's a it's a quote from Twitter from a a person if we named her it would be. Uh, everybody would know who she is. Um, but what she's arguing then is that <clears throat> because, and I, I think it lead, it leads to that, in, that absurdity is that because there's so many subjective meanings that are possible with scripture, I, I don't know really which one it possibly is. And so because I can't objectively know what the meaning of scripture is, I'm just going to trust my own, uh, my own personal self. And that seems self-contradictory because if she doesn't trust herself enough to come to the conclusion of what scripture means. Why is she trusting herself in the first place? Um, but I think that's what it leads to this, I, this subjective approach to the, the meaning of scripture uh, is this, it leads to utter absurdity and no yeah, conclusion whatsoever. Exactly. And, and as a Christian, how can you know what is true when there's so much subjectivity involved? Uh, right. Because now you're being held hostage by whatever teacher you're following. And now what you have is basically a bunch of cults you know, that, um, that that's really based upon a human authority rather than uh, a divine authority. And, and to me, the people of God take great comfort in the truths of God because the truths of God are um, godly-minded. They, they point us towards heaven. They remind us of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, by the way, just in my experience, a lot of these faulty hermeneutics um, are temporally driven. They're temporally driven, not eternally driven. You see, when you are heavenly-minded, and I saw someone tweet, recently that, um, you, you know, challenged the notion that some people are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Well, really, it's the other way around. You can't be of any earthly good unless you are heavenly minded. So I think when you have the end in mind, when you are heavenly minded, it does help drive you towards a objective um, pursuit of truth in the scriptures. But people that have temporal agendas will turn to tend to kind of go towards these more subjective kind of ways of, of truth. And so I, I think that's what we're, we're battling with. And, you know, when you have people like the lady that you had just quoted, um, you lose that comfort of knowing what is true. Now, some people strangely take comfort in this idea that tr truth is mystical, but that's just a way of saying that they can just do whatever they want. <laughs> um, so they're there, but for us, when we are heavenly minded, when we are trusting in God's purposes, his sovereignty, we want to know that the truth that we know is the truth that has always been believed, the truth that has always been taught. Yeah, I think, you know, the scariest thing about that quote that you read is the person has set themselves above the wisdom of God. I mean, when, when you start talking about, um, you know, your own internal guidance system, I mean, first of all, that is pure paganism. Um, but, but beyond that, you're setting yourself above the wisdom of God. And that, I mean, if you want to see God's response to something like that, go read Job, you know, 37, 38, 39, somewhere around there. Um, look at God's response to Job and you see that. But, it, you know, I, I mean, I think of when you read that, I instantly thought of 2 Timothy 3. It says, all scripture 
inspired by is inspired by God. God's the author uh, and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good work, fully capable. I mean, that's extremely important when we're thinking about whatever your ethnic background is bringing any value to scripture. Scripture doesn't need your ethnic background. It's fully capable on its own. And it's important enough that God put that in there for us, right? To guard us against that kind of thing. The truth is you do not bring anything to scripture except your own sin and bias. Um, you know, it's, it's the scriptures that correct us. It's the scriptures that train us. It's the scriptures that teach us in righteousness and renew our mind uh, it's not us that bring anything good to the scriptures themselves. Yeah, and I think the latest attack that kind of opens the door to all this is that scripture is not clear. Um, so some uh, some of uh, the evangelical, some of the reformed teachers that we would trust are being criticized for saying scripture is clear, but yet come and take my class so that you can help. I can help you understand scripture. And to them, they present it like it's a contradiction. Well, it's not a contradiction. Scripture is clear, but it takes work to understand. And God has gifted the church with pastors and teachers for this reason to help teach and to help expose what is the truth. But I love John MacArthur's approach because when he preaches, um, my mentor was Bill Shannon. He oversees the he oversees a, a lot um, at Grace Community Church. But he told me the story about how when he first came onto staff, he asked John MacArthur, if you say something I disagree with, can I talk to you? And John said, absolutely, but be sure you bring your Bible, which is the perfect, which is the perfect answer. It doesn't mean that you accept everything that the teacher says, but you are noble Bereans and you are looking to the scriptures to see if these things are so. So they are clear. We can find the truth, but it does take work. It's not a contradiction to say that scripture is clear, and yet God has given teachers to the church for that purpose. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that this recent battle that's attacking the clarity of Scripture, I mean, when we say the Scripture is clear, I, I mean, very simply, we mean that the average, everyday, spirit-filled person can open the Scriptures and get what they need to pursue God, to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness, and to be, uh, you know, and and a, a healthy part of the body. Yeah, but it doesn't mean they don't need teachers. And I think um, you've read this before and mentioned it several times, Ephesians 4.11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, as evangelists, as pastors, as teachers. Um, what what for? Why did he do that? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Um, and and so, it again, I, I think it's just uh, another, you know, attempt at a clever attack to be able to say, well, since the scripture isn't clear, then I have the right to interpret it however I want to. Um, we saw this battle with with other things, right? I think sufficiency um, is still a huge battle. Uh, we can go back, you know, a couple decades ago when inerrancy was attacked and, you know, just kind of cycles through those things, inerrancy and authority and sufficiency. And now it looks like clarity of scripture may be the next really big battle we have on that. But it ultimately, it's all an excuse to be able to get to the point where I can justify my own interpretation of Scripture. Yeah, and Nahum, you, you said something interesting to start the podcast. You were um, quoting one of the tweets from Nathaniel Jolly, and you said that it spoke to your heart. And it sounds kind of funny because it sounds subjective. 
But yeah. I know what you mean because you yeah. heard that, and the reason why it spoke to your heart is because, is because you recognized um, the scriptural wisdom behind it, and and that's what happens when we start talking to other believers who we know understand the scriptures. They say things that click with us because we we understand the biblical framework and and the and the various uh, principles and wisdom pearls of wisdom that we have gathered that makes sense out of that statement. And so, a good Bible teacher, a good preacher, when he goes up there to preach from the scriptures. They might reveal things that the audience had not considered, but it shouldn't be outside of the ballpark of what they have already understood. You know, so, I mean, someone who understands the Bible has studied the Bible, they might hear something and say, you know what, I never thought about that, but that makes total sense. And the reason why it makes total sense is because they are undergirded by what they understand from the scriptures. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it's important that pastors, especially uh, elders in the church, they, they pay close attention to this subjective mindset that is always present um, because it will affect our people. I mean, hopefully we would, I think we would say that pastors need to be modeling good hermeneutics from the pulpit because what generally how the people interpret the text is going to reflect how their pastor handles the word um, or it should anyway. Um, and hopefully pastors are doing all they can to, to model good hermeneutics. But I, I'm, I'm reminded of what Paul tells the Ephesian elders in, in Acts chapter 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Uh, and, so, and so we see Paul recognizing that once he leaves, there is going to be attacks on scripture, on, on sound doctrine from outside the church. But even that, there's going to arise from amongst their own people. Um, uh, there's going to arise people that are going to uh, be speaking um, twisted things. And so I think uh, it's good for pastors to be aware of this because um, this is going to be in their church sooner rather than later. And we must be protecting not only our ministries and our churches, but the people as well. Amen to that. Okay. So in summary, then uh, I guess we're, we're, we're uh, coming on time, so let's 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 summarize our statements. Then, uh, Nathan Nathaniel, we'll just start with you. Yeah, I, you know, in all this, we we started with talking about the meaning of scripture, and I I would just say we need to remember that the author is the only final authority for the meaning of the words they wrote. And if we can if if we can remember that and try to get to the author's meaning, then we'll get to the right meaning. Yeah, and I would, good statement, I, I would say also that we want to understand that we, we should interpret the scriptures the way we interpret our modern communications. Um, just as Nathaniel said, there is a meaning to be discerned, and it's going to take time for us. The original audience, when they received what they received, um, they didn't have to spend nearly as much time as we do because they were in context. They understood who the author is. They understood what they were going through. And so they're in context. They understood things much more quickly. And us, because we are separated in time and in terms of language and the cultures and geography and all those kinds of things, 
we need to spend the time to figure out, um, to put in the work so that we can figure out what was that context, uh, what was being said, why it was being said, who was being said to, and what problems it addressed, and draw from that the spiritual principles, but to do so in context of the rest of the scriptures. We want to go to the whole counsel of God. And when we do that, when we treat it as one cohesive work, one cohesive work, and we recognize that there was an occasion for every book that was written, there was a purpose behind every book that was written, and tie it all together, then I think people will see that there's not a whole lot of room for various interpretations. There is room for one interpretation, and there is room for multiple applications, depending upon where you're at. But we, we can't be in this mindset of saying <clears throat> there's multiple um, legitimate interpretations. Now, that doesn't mean that we agree on everything, but on the most important things, we really should be agreed because on the most important things, scripture is absolutely crystal clear. Yeah, and it's like you both said earlier, if we found a, a, a letter of poetry in the woods, it doesn't matter who finds that letter. It has one meaning. And that one meaning is what the author intended it to mean. It doesn't matter whether I from the United States pick it up or whether uh, someone from North Korea picks it up from a completely different worldview, a completely different background and ethnicity that still has that one meaning that the author intended. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we're saying in, in a roundabout way through this interview. Um, so with that, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to get to know you and to speak with you. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be on. Yeah, thank you, Nahum.